Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. Hi, it's AJ Vaden, and thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. It is a wonderful honor to introduce you to one of my newer friends. Brett Kissel is an amazing young man. He actually was recently named Male Artist of the Year by the Canadian Country Music Awards. And he is in his 20s, in his late 20s, and is just a rising superstar internationally. He actually won an award from the Worldwide Radio Summit in Hollywood that named him International Artist of the Year, which was previously given to people like Adele and Ed Sheeran and Drake. He has won two Junos. He's won 12 CCMAs, Canadian Country Music Awards. He's got an honor from Canada's Walk of Fame, six times Western Canadian Music Awards, and he's just amazing. He's toured with Garth Brooks. He's the only Canadian to ever do that. He's a fifth-generation Albertan, and he just is a total family guy, has built his following from nothing when he was a kid, and I thought it would just be awesome to kind of hear some of his stories and philosophies about how he's done that. So, Brett, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Rory, for having me. What a glowing introduction. I don't think there's any way I can actually live <laughs> up to all that stuff because when the awards, well, the circuit and the awards season, a lot of that even has to do with you know some luck and, and stuff like that. But I'm very thankful. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear early on, how did you start? Like at what age did you start performing and start doing concerts? And just, I mean, I think you're still very, very much on the rise, but you are, you know, certainly have broken through the mainstream in Canada, now moving into the US. You know, we met, you live here in Nashville. We got a chance to work with you because we knew, you know, some of your management team. But like you've been at this for a while and I would love for people just to kind of hear the story of how you got started doing music and, you know, more than that, just building your fan base. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, my journey in country music, I think, is very similar to a lot of others. But I've always related my career to that of athlete and guys in sports. You know, I I got my guitar when I was young. It's like a kid hockey stick or a baseball bat, you know, when you're five or six years old. And you really take a liking to it. My grandmother, she said that she saw music in me. So she got me a guitar. That guitar was a big, big thing to get because I immediately stopped sports and I just focused on music. And nobody else in my family ever played music. Nobody sang, Mm -hmm. nobody did anything. This was really unique, I think, to my family and to my extended family too. 
So I had that great support system. I started playing around family. And then, you know, one family member, maybe they know somebody who's got a customer appreciation at the local Ford dealer in town. So I go and I sing a couple songs as a seven-year-old there. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't ever have fear of the stage, I guess. Then, you know, somebody's me there and says, why don't you come and play this rodeo in the nearby town and play a couple songs there? So I'm nine years old and I'm playing songs there. And now I'm 11 and people are still make a recording because we buy it. So I made my first cassette tape uh, locally with a guy who's a producer. Nice. And, and we made like 500 copies. My parents and I thought we will never be able to give away 500 copies. And yet we like <laughs> sold them in two gigs. So we sold them. And I mean, people were buying it because I was a little kid. Like every grandma and grandpa was supporting this little boy in a cowboy hat. But 500 cassettes, new record. And then, and then before we knew it, we were opening up a savings account and a checking account and a business account for me because I'm making 500 bucks. And from there, you know, I really just started to learn how to save money and reinvest into myself. And at that time, I'm like 12 years old. Mm. And I got nominated for a Canadian Country Music Award. And that took me from kind of a regional act to an act and to get that national exposure on TV up in Canada was very special. And from there into my teens, the minute I graduated high school, I knew this was all I'd ever wanted to do. And this is all I thought I ever really could do. And it's all I needed to do. So I truly built a business and weren't necessarily country artists or performers, but were businessmen and businesswomen who would teach me a lot of those great things. So music was my business. And I'm very thankful that I was able to then take those lessons that I learned as a kid and as a teen, bring that energy down to Nashville, which I've done for the past 10 years or about eight years living in Music City. And it's been a hell of a ride. Mm-hmm. Well, and so talk to me about like reputation in general. And I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on the word reputation. Like what is your definition of it? What are your philosophies about Juan? Why do you think it matters sort of in the music business and beyond? And just sort of like, how do you go about establishing one? Man, that is such a great question, Rory. And reputation is everything in business, no matter what. And I've seen it firsthand for myself because I know I'm not the best singer. I'm the best songwriter or guitar player or entertainer. But I try my very best to develop a brand that's based on reputating a good guy. And the thing about it is that people, the fans, and I'm one of them too, uh, first and foremost, I'm a fan of country music. I'm a fan of certain brands. And if you've got a good reputation, you want to see those people or those brands win. Now, Garth Brooks, for an example, has won everything. Like Garth Brooks is like Elvis, is like the Beatles. It's like, I mean, he will go down in history as people will, We'll use them like, you know, talk about it like you talk about Shakespeare or Beethoven or, or stuff like that because he's got an incredible reputation. Whether you love his music or not, you know there is an amazing guy and you want to see guys like that win. And it's interesting because as good of a reputation one hopes to build, if you've got a bad reputation, that even spreads like wildfire even further. So it's mm. important way thing that you a bad rap because it's so hard to come back from that. I don't know some of these celebrities and their stories or as to why you know things went up for them. I'm not here to judge. All I'm here is to state the facts that 
a celebrity with an incredible reputation is few and far between, you know, to find, but a celebrity with a bad reputation or bad press or bad things. I mean, isn't it crazy how we hear about those stories even more so? If that said, protecting your reputation and working to make sure that you've got a good one and something that's very solid so that people will continue to support you and want to see you win. That's kind of the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think Garth is a great example of that. Of course, AJ is a huge <laughs> Garth fan. We got to see him uh, about a year ago. And that was incredible. I think he lives up to all the things that you're talking about. Now, I want to talk about social media for a second and just kind of nurturing a fan base. And how have you done that? Or are there things that you've done that you feel like have worked for building your reputation off the stage? Because clearly it's like, you know, performing when you're on stage is what it's all about. You're an amazing singer, amazing songwriter. We've had your music playing around the house a lot lately. And just, you know, that is certainly one part of it, right? Is the performance. But what are some of the things that you do behind the scenes that maybe people either don't know about or don't see or they should be doing if they're wanting to try to like build the kind of engaged fan base that you've been able to create? Well, you know what? The first thing that I'll say, Rory, is that everybody has a different perspective on social media. And you know what? What works for me may work for, uh, I don't know, uh, this artist or that person. And what works for Gary Vee may not work for Joe Rogan. And what works for Joe doesn't work for you. And we've all got our different paths. But for me, I've found great success in being very real, in showing vulnerable parts of my life. And I've honestly found it to be therapeutic to not have to put on a show for my fans or on Facebook or Twitter. When people follow me, they're truly getting a real life inside look at what I'm doing. And if that's interesting, if you don't find it interesting, that's fine. You don't need to engage or anything, but I'm really happy that I can be myself. And that's where I've most happiness on social media because like I said, it, it can be therapeutic to vent and to get things out and maybe get some advice from other people. But you know what? I'm a performer on the stage and that's for 90 minutes of my day. The other 22 and a half hours, I'm a husband. I've got three beautiful kids, two daughters and a son, Mila, my oldest daughter. She's three. Aria is next in line. She's two. And then Leo, our son, he's six months old. So we're in the heart of the chaos. And I think it's very relatable because I'm no different every other family who's going through the ups and the downs of balancing career and life and the beautiful chaos that is being a father and a young parent. <laughs> when I show that side, I mean, you know it too, Rory. I mean, it's like that's real life and people want to see real life. So that's where I get the most engagement. You know what's interesting, Rory? said My record label early on said, hey, you know what? This is our strategy with you. And I said, okay, hit me. What is it? You don't wear the wedding ring so you can look available. Let's not talk about your family too much. You pop your 19 and everybody's really trying to discover themselves in their 20s into their 30s. So let's keep you that way so that you're relatable. And honestly, I from the minute one, my wife and I, we said, and I'm going to swear here, but I said, bullshit. Like, no way. This is who I am. This is what I do. I'm proudly married and everything like that. And if you want to go on just analytics, I will get twice or three times the likes of a picture of me as a stressed out dad 
with pancake batter all over my t-shirt <laughs> and a kid hanging upside down on my shoulders than I will in front of 30,000 people opening for Garth Brooks at a festival. People are like, okay, that's cool, but this is relatable. So mm. that's kind of my stance on how I do my socials. I love that. I think that's, and that it's very fitting with your brand. I mean, you're just very relatable and real in real life. So one of the things that I think you've also done really well, and I think, you know, we have a brand builders group. We don't work with a ton of musicians, but it seems like more and more we're getting into the space and we really have a heart for musicians because it can be such a tough road financially. And even when you make it, it's like you're gone all the time performing and so we have a real passion to try to help musicians create some monetary streams that don't require them to like be out on the road all the time, right? And you guys have done a good job of this. And I know you're working on other revenue streams and things, but I think you guys are very forward thinking in terms of how you do it. And one of the things that I think you've done really well so far is just like these brand deals. And you've been able to kind of get some brand deals. You've been able to create long-term relationships there. And I wondered if you could just share a little bit about like what exactly is a brand deal? How do you get them? Like how do you find the people? How do you charge? You know, what do you deliver? Like just all of that because that feels like a very immediately monetizable stream, if you will, for musicians. Well, yeah. I mean, Rory, it really is. And it's such an interesting world we live in right now where social media is the new king. Now, it's been king for a while, but a lot of companies are really figuring that out and allocating their investment dollars, getting in publicity in influencers and people on social media, as opposed to the return on TV, which is ever-changing, uh, radio, which in a lot of ways is a fat that's you know, trying real hard to rebrand. And it's still very important in country music, but in some areas, it's dying. And print, we all know, is dead. So people are living on their phones. Okay, we know this. So what does that mean for me? I'm very passionate about a number of products. And I remember my wife and I, we sat down and we thought to ourselves, what kind of things do we use in our lives that make our lives easier? Is it this? What do we like to drink? What do we like to eat? Where do we like to go? What do we like to wear? It's all of these things. And we took an approach because she's uh, an influencer in her own right. And we took an approach about genuinely wanting to talk about brands that we love. That was priority number one, mm -hmm. because there's authenticity there. That I would say, if I stopped and this conversation ended right now, if you are associated with brands that you're authentically connected to, that's a win-win for both. That's where we can extract money as the influencer and as the spokespeople for that brand. And that's where the brand is going to win because you're talking about something that they're not reading from a script and they're able to craft a message that is unique and doesn't look like a sales job. Mm -hmm. Because you can see, of course, we need hashtag ad on everything for whatever rules we got to follow. But if I'm talking about something I don't know anything about, people are going to see through that and it's going to look bad. So authenticity is number one. And when you've got something authentic, you can take it to step two, which is truly try to monetize and extract as much value as you can from the company, because we know that we're going to be more effort and a bigger return on their investment of sponsorship into us. Everything that I do, Rory, isn't cut and paste. Um, it, it's, 
every company has different needs and different wants. Some of them are a lot more about social media. Some of them are a lot more about what I'm going to say from the stage. And some of them are a lot more about the return is what they're going to get from clients and entertaining important customers. For example, it's very difficult for me to craft a message for an oil company in Northern Alberta, you know, on social media. They don't care about that. But what they do want to do is they want to wine and dine certain clients to get the next big project or something like that to come here. Sometimes mm-hmm. they need to educate me on their big environmental you know, changes that they're making. And they need somebody like myself to craft a message because energy in Alberta is such a hot topic for the rest of the world. And then sometimes you've got a juice company, Oasis Juice, who just want to be associated with families and we're a great growing family. Then you've got a company like Marks who are exclusively in Canada. They're a denim company. They're a store of everything from boots. It's an apparel company and they want somebody who grew up on a farm and somebody who's a busy dad also can wear these on stage. It all fits. So what I do for this company is different from what I do with the vehicle company and you truly make it unique needs and then you can kind of craft a dollar amount to get from them at that point. Okay, so I love that. So I love the authenticity element. I love the idea of promoting the stuff that you actually use every day and you can speak intelligently about, right? How do you get them? Do you just like email the company website or call them or like go to their headquarters and walk in the door? Like what what do you do to kind of open that conversation. I mean, at your stage, your name carries a lot of weight in your reputation, particularly in like Canada and certain circles, but did they all reach out to you or do you find them? There's a bunch of different ways that this happens. You know what? Before my name had had any relevance in Canada, it was cold call and it was a meeting. It's all about connections. You try to find someone who knows somebody. It's basic sales. I mean, you can watch that on YouTube, you can see a fit, you know, it's literally, it's just basic salesmanship. So when I was 16, I got my driver's license in my home province. And I felt that there was a market of new drivers like me that were going to be buying their first vehicle. So who were they going to buy it from? Were they going to get a used vehicle? Were they going to buy brand new? Well, I found a company, it was called Driving Force, and it was based in Edmonton our capital city, two hours away. So I cold called them. I was 16 years old, asked if I could speak with the CEO. He wasn't available. So I spoke with the marketing director and I asked if I could have a meeting. Went in with my dad. I drove to town, turned to the city, you know, the next week. And I had like this presentation lined up. I remember doing it in school, figuring out how to do one's presentation. It was like a special project. So a beautiful duotang and everything I was going to do And I said, if you give me a deal on a vehicle, I'll be able to take this to my network of friends and other people like me. This is in 2006. So this is before like Facebook was big, but before anything. And I said, if you'll do this, I will try my very best to give as many vehicles and at least make driving force be their first call. And it's up to your salespeople to deliver. I cannot guarantee you I'm going to sell vehicles, but I will do my very best. He's like, I'll tell you what, kid we're just going to give you a truck. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God. He's like, we believe in you. This is great. If, and then, you know, you're an artist. So if you can do a couple gigs for us a year, how much do you charge for your gigs? I'm like, well, if it's me and my guitar, it's $2,500. If it's me and my band, it's 7,000 and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, I need three shows at 7,000. That's $21,000 and $1,000 back in value. 
And basically, then we're going to give you this brand new 2006 GMC three-quarter ton. So I drove two years, and now they send me into the city of Edmonton to meet with the mayor and as well as the CEO of the company to get a releasing of you know 250 citywide vehicles. They're the ones who send me up to uh, Fort McMurray, Alberta, to Suncor or this whatever oil company that need you know 290 lease vehicles. So instead of the CEO brokering the deal, they send me in for I don't know. They call it razzle dazzle. Like seriously, (laughs) I love that stuff. And now I'm a paid employee of the company and I've been with them. I'm 29. I've been with them for 13 years. And I started as a cold call when you're six, who says you can't do it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you can't. Now my name carries weight. So now my manager or my assistant can just call up a juice company and say, Hey, we'd like to make this work. Let's sit down. Let's meet. You know, next time Brett's in Montreal, we're going to try and figure out a time to meet. So now it's easier. But anybody who says that it's so tough, it is tough. I get it. But you can do it. Mm, I love that. Anyone who says it's tough, it is tough, but you can do it. That is so true. So I want to hear about like, so did you have a definitive moment where that pivot happened? You know, we call it breaking through the wall or you know, specifically Sheehan's wall of where you're like bouncing off the wall and being absorbed in the noise of the mainstream. But then you know, you sort of find your uniqueness and you create velocity and clarity and you break through the wall and then your life as a personal brand shifts from push to pull. And so now, you know, like your story that you just shared of cold calling, that's very much like a classic push story. Like you're out there hustling, you know, networking, cold calling, talking, like doing whatever you're doing. But then at some point, it flips to pole, which is where it seems like you're at now, right? Your manager or your assistant can kind of make the call. When did that moment happen for you? Or was there a specific moment? Or, you know, like talk about that kind of like breakthrough point and how did you notice it? Or when did you notice or when didn't you notice it? Like, I'd love to just kind of hear like your perspective on that. At first, I honestly, I want to compliment you and to everybody who's listening to this I remember vividly one of my favorite parts of getting together with you to talk about the growth of my brand was when we talked about Shan's Wall. When Mm. we talked about that, I was able to go back home and look, not physically look through my calendar, but remember important meetings and important times of my life where it was push, push, push and hustle and no return. And it was just it was like I was beating my head up against the wall, truly, until you finally break through. And there were definitive moments. There wasn't just one because there's so many different aspects of my career. There's even a way that you can put that into perspective for your own personal relationships where you're working so hard to try and get something, but finally you make it through you know, with your spouse or with your children. But when it comes to business and music, there were some really, really, really great times. Driving Force and that deal with me was a big moment on the entrepreneurial side for me and the sponsorship spokesperson side. I am kind of like the NASCAR guy of Canadian country music. I've got logos everywhere. And <laughs> I couldn't be more proud of that. We know we can deliver. We know and we know that we can, we can give back to the communities and have so many things. It's not conceded here, Rory. It's not that like, oh, well, I don't want to pay for cowboy boots. Let's get them sponsored. It's a lot deeper than that for me. But if you do want to think about it simply, 
well, yeah. I mean, why pay for this when someone, you know, we can strike a deal, we can work together on this. So all I'm saying is that driving force moment was big for me on the spokesperson side. I realized I can do that at 16 and I've never stopped. And I get turned down more times than people say yes. That's the thing, you have a thick skin. Like I don't care when people say no because I know I can go to somebody else and somebody's going to say yes one way or another. The real side and the spokesperson side, that breakthrough was in 2006, what, May 27th, I turned 16. I had a truck the first of June, like literally five, six days later. So that was a big thing. On the music side of things, it was the day that I finally got a legitimate manager in business. I was 20 years old and I've been doing everything locally by myself, or it was me and my wife. We had local managers who were great. We didn't have the connections nationally or internationally, or especially in Nashville. I mean, they could help book gigs for me, but that was just at the local rodeo in Calgary or Northern Alberta or Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That wasn't the NFR that I wanted to play. That wasn't PBR. That wasn't the big stuff. So I needed a real manager. And I cold called a bunch of managers, but I called this one guy and I loved him the most based on seeing him at award shows. Louis O'Reilly was his, he was from Saskatchewan. He was a small town guy. He grew up on a farm. He was starting to work with a guy who was an agent named Jim Cressman, who's also a small town guy, grew up on a farm. I'm like, these are my people. They're going to get my story. And they're building up their own businesses, respectively, and working with some of the biggest names in Canadian country. So I cold called them, flew them out to a show. I saved up money so I could pay for their flights and even put them up first class and everything like that. Put them in the nicest hotel in town so I could really like wheel and deal them. And I got a great manager after that gig in Louis agent shortly after and Jim Cressman, who you know, and those were the guys. Now my team went from one person to three, and I'm talking three pit bulls, and we could go in the world. Matter of years, we had a record deal, which was another big thing in Canada. Within a number of years, we had awards, we had tours, we had everything. We stripped the team in place to go. I'm sorry I'm talking so, so much Roy here. I'm just passionate about it. This is great. This is exactly what I want. I wanted people to hear because I think, you know, even like becoming an international music star, for most people, it's like such a far-fetched dream. They're like, I don't even know how to start. And you think, oh, well, you know, you come to Nashville and you play in the Bluebird Cafe and you get discovered and then you're Taylor Swift. And it's like, that is such the wrong way to do it. Like, it's like that maybe happens one in a million, but what I love is just your story of just relentless discipline, you know, taking the stairs to use our phrase from our first book and just doing the things that people weren't willing to do and like, you know, playing the stages and doing the business side of it and then finding your way to the managers and that opening doors and just like one thing leading to the next, to the next, to the next. And I love it right now because I think, you know, in the U S like you're still breaking through and I think it's going to be awesome. Like 10 years from now, for people to come back and listen to this interview and hear like your mentality approach. And, you know, when you break through in the US, it'll be like, whoa, where'd this guy come from? And yet it's like, you've been doing this since you're 12 years old, like playing local car dealerships and rodeos and then kind of working your way up. So one last little question, in terms of music specifically, how important do you think it is for musicians to really build the business side of it and the business acumen. Like, 
you know, you've been really focused on not only getting brand deals, but also helping, you know, even the way you talk, it's like, how can I get the most for my sponsors and how can I help them? Do you think that that's like a necessary skill set for musicians to really make it this day? Or do you think, you know, no, that's more of just like an ancillary benefit that, you know, if you have it good, if not, it's okay. It's a very interesting thing because of course, I mean, all I can really, you know, go on is my opinion on the matter in for me, business side, while you're developing the artistic side, I believe is a very important marriage and it's something that everybody needs to think about and work towards on a daily basis because you can't have one without the other. Is there one that's more important? I will say yes, it's the art side. It's that you can have marketing ideas in the world and try to reach out to four dealers to have a million dollar sponsorship deal. It ain't gonna happen if you're not good. So you need that side. But if you haven't developed the business side to be ready for when the art happens, then Mm. truly you're missing out on a great opportunity to have longevity in the business. And longevity comes from financial security. Longevity comes from uh, sponsorship and connections and great people that you can connect with around the world. So I think it's very, very important to have the B side ready to go. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, and I know that's why, you know, originally when Jim, because we were working with Jim Cressman and he introduced us to you and like even the fact that you're working with us is sort of like very much outside the norm of what musicians would be doing. And it's like, that's why you're doing it. It's like, you're always forward thinking to be set up to sort of like to prepare yourself to receive you know, as the future unfolds. I really, really love that. Brett, where do you want people to go if they want to connect with you and learn more either about your story or your music and just kind of like connect up with you? Well, thanks, man. Well, I mean, my favorite platform is Instagram. So you can just follow me, Brett Kissel. Uh, I can see if you want even a little bit more personal side of what life is really like, follow my wife too, Cecilia Kiss. And then one of the greatest things is that, you know what, just come and see me at a show. Uh, visit my tour page on brettkissel.com. I mean, that's kind of a really, really great way to see what I'm like on the stage. And then social media will show you exactly what I'm like off the stage. It's a great life that we live, traveling around, playing music. I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you, Rory, and not talk as much about music, but to talk truly about, well, the entrepreneurial spirit that us artists, a lot of us uh, truly do have. So I thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, this has been wonderful, man. I thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's so inspiring as well as instructional and informative to hear. And I think the last thing I want to invite you to share with people is if there's someone out there listening right now, and let's say that they, you know, they kind of have the big dream, whether it's in music or not, but they're at that moment where they're like hitting their head against the wall, kind of like you have been and they're bumping up against that roadblock and they're, you know, feeling like no one's listening, no one's paying attention. What would you say to that person right now? Well, I think the first thing is, is you got to look inside and if what you're selling, what you've created, what you're working towards and what you're working on, whether that's an invention, whether that's your songwriting, whether that's, you know, any type of entrepreneurial idea, do you genuinely believe that it's going to work? Because if you do, and you've got that heart and soul invested into it, well, then that's great. Then you can go to step two. Now, you can always rework step one and make sure that what you're doing is refined and unbeatable. Because then when you go out to step two, it's just about continuing to work hard. Hard work pays off. It always has. It 
always will. You know what? Two of my biggest influences are people that I've never met, but I really hope to one day. One is Dwayne Rock Johnson with his strength and his perseverance, his incredible gratitude, but his work ethic. And the other one is one of the softest entrepreneurs. She's fierce and fiery, and that's Dolly Parton, who's developed and built an mm. empire in music. So Dolly and The Rock couldn't be further from each other. Like, look at them. They couldn't be further from each other. But do you know what they have in common? Work ethic. They are the workers in the room. And I truly respect that because hard work pays off. And it's something that you and I talked about, Rory, that has been it for me. Outwork everyone. I know I'm not the most talented, but I know that I've got that farming background. It's in my blood. The Rock did it. Dolly Parton did it. I want to do it too. Outwork everybody. So that's what everyone else needs to do. Well, someone else has been out or taken a bit of time off or a holiday or something like that. Work your way in and take that meeting and work till midnight. Do what you need to do. Well, there you have it. We'll end on that note. Brett Kissel, ladies and gentlemen, go follow him on Instagram. We'll put a link to his website, brettkissel.com. Brett, we wish you the very best, my friend. We're honored to be uh, in your fan base and part of your troop. And we're just, we're committed to seeing you break through here in the U.S. as you have in Canada and around the world. We know it's coming, brother. So keep at it. Oh, buddy. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. Hi to your family. We'll see you back in uh, Music City very soon. That's all we've got for this episode of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help us and other new potential listeners to find our show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave us a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, take a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. We will give you free lifetime access to 25 of our most popular interviews on video in your own private members-only area. So go right now, rate us, review us, and then send a screenshot of it into podcast at brandbuildersgroup.com. And we will get you set up with free lifetime access to our most popular video interviews all in one place. Also, please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation.